Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Mike Philbrick, CEO at Resolve Asset Management. Our exceptional guests today are Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro LLC, and Mary Hagerman, Portfolio Manager at Raymond James. Darius Dale is the founder and CEO of 42 Macro, a startup investment research firm that aims to disrupt the financial services industry by democratizing institutional-grade macro risk management processes. Prior to founding 42 Macro, Darius was a managing director and partner at Hedgeye Risk Management, a leading independent investment and research firm based in Stamford, Connecticut. At Hedgeye, Darius was the sector head of the macro team and was a core contributor to the firm's economic outlook and associated investment strategy views. Mary Hagerman is an award-winning portfolio manager with more than 30 years of experience. Mary has guided thousands of clients and their families along the path to financial freedom. Mary joins us today as a guest advisor panelist. She understands the emotional toll money can take on people's lives. That's why she has dedicated her professional life to helping alleviate money anxiety. She's also the author of the best-selling finance thriller, The Black Belt Investor, <laughs> a martial arts guide to wealthness, how to kick butt and feel rich. <laughs> The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Darius, Mary, welcome to Raise Your Average. It's awesome to have you both on the show. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. You're so kind. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're very and kind, Pierre. Appreciate you. <laughs> awesome. So uh, to get things started, tell us each the stories of your careers, your background, what you're working on, uh, your mission. Oh, ladies first, Mary. <laughs> hey, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Mary. So, Pierre, I mean, thanks for that great introduction. I have been a financial advisor, portfolio manager, and a financial planner now for over 30 years. Um, I'm based in Montreal with Raymond James, uh, but I've had a career that has spanned uh, a couple different industries over that time. Uh, I had a big wake-up moment in my career with uh, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. Um, it really turned around the way I manage money. I became a discretionary money manager at that time, and I gravitated towards the use of exchange-traded funds in my portfolios. I was very early into exchange-traded funds at the time, and I became uh, a pioneer, actually, in the field uh, through my writing, through my investor education, because I had to tell people what I was so passionate about. That eventually made its way into a book I wrote, the, uh, the Black Belt Investor, a little over five years ago. And it's called uh, The Black Belt Investor, How to uh, Kick Butt and Feel Rich. I'm a, pra a practicing black belt in karate and have been for over 20 years. I do yoga too. I very much believe that uh, um, that you can't be truly happy unless you have a good, healthy connection with money, but also, um, you know, you have to feel good in your body and your mind too. So 
I look to bring the financial side of the happiness equation uh, to my clients. And um, that's that's how I practice what I do. I'm a mother of three now adult children. And um, I just love what I do. And I love bringing prosperity and happiness to my clients. That is wonderful, Mary. I'm guessing you're, when the market's down a bunch and you get those client calls, it's a little bit easier <laughs> when you have a black belt. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. It's, no. it's discipline, discipline. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. That's the uh, that's the that's the thriller part of yeah. the uh, of the novel of the book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, well, yeah. I I um, am not as cool as Mary. Uh, I, I do not have a black belt. I, a very large black guy that helps uh, the, the listeners. So, um, now, tongue in cheek. Uh, so, uh, my name is Harry Dale. I'm the founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Uh, as Pierre said, uh, we're a quantum mental macro risk management shop. Uh, we really focus on systematic, data driven uh, macroeconomic projections, forecasts. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is help investors navigate the markets through the lens of dispersion within asset classes and relative performance across asset classes. We help uh, advisors, uh, portfolio managers at, at mutual funds, hedge funds, pension funds, CIOs, those those types of investors, uh, help them construct portfolios according to um, the, the rate of change cycle for for some critical macroeconomic impulses. Uh, we do this through the lens of our regime segmentation process. Um, you know, sort of, I cut my teeth at Wall Street, uh, as Pierre mentioned, at, at Hedge Iris Management, uh, where I'm most notably known for sort of uh, designing and developing uh, their system called the Quads, which they use to to inform their asset allocation. Uh, decision making. So, um, you know, with respect to, you know, kind of continuing along the path of regime segmentation, uh, we really decided to build that out and, and add a lot more sort of color around the market signaling aspects around that and also a little bit more color on uh, the back testing aspects of that to further help investors uh, construct portfolios. And that's something that we really specialize in here at uh, 42 Macro. So happy to be joining you guys and looking forward to the discussion. Sounds awesome. great. Happy to have you. Yep, thank you. So why don't why don't we start, Darius, with with sort of your your landscape right now, sort of the the general top down thesis, where we are, um, what's surprising, what's you know sort of par for the course, what you're seeing out there, and then um, we can discuss that further and flesh that out. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, do you guys mind if I share slides? Not at all. I think I Not think the viewership yeah, would like that. Oh, good. I, I'm 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 a big I'm a firm believer. That charts are a lot better than human pros. <laughs> uh, so just, yeah, absolutely. So uh, just get to this. So uh, in terms of where we are, so let me take give you a, just a little bit of a background on on our regime segmentation process that allow investors sort of to you know understand exactly what I'm saying. It, it'll make a little bit more sense. But uh, we think about the world through four distinct regimes: um, Goldilocks. Uh, that's when growth is is accelerating and inflation decelerating. Um, that's up here to the left. That's a positive economic environment, and historically, it's been risk on from the perspective of asset markets with the disinflationary bias, uh, growth inflation accelerating simultaneously. That's what we call reflation or R that's uh, risk on with the next inflation accelerating bias, a pro inflation bias. Um, that's where you, we favor cyclicals as opposed to, to sort of, um, you know, more, uh, digital economy type exposures, uh, which is dominating Goldilocks, uh, inflation down here. That's when growth's decelerating and inflation's accelerating. Uh, that's a risk off with an inflationary bias. That's something we. Um, could very well be heading into, you know, starting next, uh, ne you know, next quarter or so. Um, so keep your eyes on your fries there with respect to that. And then lastly, growth and inflation decelerating simultaneously, that's deflation. And so uh, obviously that tends to characterize, um, the markets tend to be characterized by risk off 
uh, performance, you tend to see an outperformance of defensives over cyclicals, which is generally true uh, in both the, um, the the lower grids as well. And just to, to, to wrap that up, you know, the reason we look at the world through this regime segmentation process is because it explains a lot of the dispersion in and across asset markets. Um, very consistently, when you're in one of these four regimes, you typically see the relative performance of equity sector elite, style factor leadership, equity sector leadership, leadership within and across the fixed income markets tends to be very sticky across time, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, across time based on those rate of change impulses in the economy. So it's our primary job as investors, one, to, to identify and, and, and forecast what those regimes might be, but then secondarily also to acknowledge it and acknowledge the fact that markets are obviously always super dynamic and always evolving and understand, okay, what percentage of this is getting priced in? Where are the opportunities? Where are the risks? relative to the current setup as it relates to all the different policy variables or something like a COVID-19, which obviously is its own idiosyncratic risk. And so Mike, to answer your question, uh, where we've been, we've been in this situation where we've come out of the, we've come out of a situation in the summertime where investors weren't getting much signal from the economy. Obviously we got, we, we had record fiscal stimulus. We had record uh, reopening impulse in the first half of the year. And so the lagged impact of that really created a, a very sort of, you know, kind of risk on environment throughout the summertime, yet the economics were actually starting to deteriorate such that you started to see quite a bit of defensive leadership emerge within the equity and credit markets. And this is something that sort of uh, culminated at the end of September, early part of October. Um, you know, we made a call in mid-September saying, hey, look, we're starting to actually see this leadership <laughs> revolve back into a cyclical uh, uh, sort of dynamic as well. And so we do believe there's going to be a Q4 inflation trade. Uh, certainly, we've seen reflation uh, peak its head out as the modal outcome uh, going back to late September, early October, and that's obviously uh, still the case here. But to me, the, and to answer the question, Mike, the, where, we, the, where we go from here is increasingly challenging to answer. But more importantly, I think it's the reason it's, answer, it's challenging to answer because all the things that you would actually expect to perpetuate reflation may, in fact, perpetuate deflation from this point forward, just given the likely policy response to any further upside and in inflation statistics from here. So. It's kind of a tricky market, but it's, you know, it's kind of our job to, 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 to make sense of it all and really ultimately help investors uh, prepare for that. And, and how, how is that going to function? How is that inflation going to turn deflationary? Yeah, so that, that's an that's a excellent question. So to me, I think the, the number one thing you have to look at is, okay, what is the investor's willingness to bet on inflation hedges from here? Um, what's the likely upside in inflation hedges from here? We've done a lot of work on uh, it's the cyclical and structural inflation dynamics in the economy in terms of trying to quantify the appropriate level of something like a 10-year break-even, the appropriate level of a five-year, five-year forward uh, inflation swap. And right now, we're pretty much at where we should be. Um, if you look at around 270 on the 10-year break-even or around 255 on the five-year, five-year forward inflation swap, our math on, on the secular inflation dynamics in the economy um, are kind of getting us to the point where we believe that you know it's very likely that inflation doesn't have much higher to go from here. And so the, in terms of uh, realized uh, reported inflation, um, it, it, rel sorry, in terms of inflation expectations. And so the reality is if reported inflation continues to surprise to the upside, which by the way, our models don't think it will, we actually, uh, our models are calling for October to actually have been the peak in inflation. And it's very likely that we decelerate pretty persistently from here through the end of next year. Now we're not decelerating back to a normalized level of inflation as implied by the analysis that I'm about to uh, sort of, dis uh, we can unpack in a little bit. Uh, but the reality is if we continue to see upside surprise in the model and inflation, to me, I think the big risk on that 
Um, and I think the market is really starting to get aware of that risk is that the Biden administration's agenda, economic agenda might actually start to become derailed. Um, we were always skating on thin ice from the perspective of buy-in um, with respect to Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema. And it looks increasingly like, you know, that buy-in is, is, is dwindling rapidly um, as a function of the six handle on CPI and, and the clearly as a function of the, 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 the narrative having shifted around uh, President Biden's approval rating and things of that nature. So uh, we certainly believe that, again, any upside surprises in inflation from here will really start to tank that agenda and the secondary impact of that agenda taking is investors' willingness to bet on pure commodity speculation may actually start to go in the wrong direction. So, so in a nutshell, Darius, uh, you're, you're, you're saying that the latest inflation report from the Fed last week, that was peak. Mm -hmm. That was the peak inflation impulse. Yep. And your, your, your outlook is, is that inflation reverts back to the mean yeah. from here. And well, so, you, you, yes, the answer to that, you, you said something uh, really important, the mean. The, our analysis is telling us that the mean of inflation, the stationary mean of this time series, is roughly 80 basis points higher already in terms of the next trail, okay. the, the, the four or 10 year out outlook. And so how we get to that, right. um, how we get to that statistic, are we, we looked at, you know, so if you think about all the things that drive inflation uh, from a longer term time horizon, you know, things like automation, demographics, uh, globalization, the fiscal balance, the, uh, uh, the public debt, you know, the money supply, all these various factors are shocking the, the time, the stationary mean of the inflation time series in one direction or another. Um, as you can see in this table here, we're having, if it's a positive value, it's shocking the inflation time series higher. It's a negative value, it's shocking the inflation time series lower. And if the indicator is bolded, that means it, it, it has a better correlation to uh, inflation over a longer term time horizon. And so the reality is, is when you sort of do the math on, on everything that's changing in and around the inflation events, because it's not all one direction. I think that's kind of one, that's one of the misnomers about the inflation discussion right now. And I think that's part of the, what the bond market is actually looking at and saying, hey, inflation is not this one linear train higher. There's still a lot of things that are perpetuating this correction in the yield curve that we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of flattening in the yield curve. And in our opinion, we think some of that flattening in the yield curve might be looking out to, you know, next year into 2023, 2024 and saying, hey, things like demographics are very disinflationary. Things like the, the money velocity is very disinflationary. Technology is very disinflationary. Wealth inequality is very disinflationary. And so it's, the market is effectively suggesting that, hey, once we get out of this really hot period of inflation that's really being perpetuated by, again, some partially transitory factors and some partially not transitory factors. We, on the transitory side, you obviously have fiscal stimulus and the way it lagged impact of that wearing off. Uh, reopening demand was a one-time event in terms of the, 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 the intensity of vaccinations all at once. But then you have some things that are more structure or, or, or not necessarily um, or not transitory. Wages being the most uh, notable uh, one of those things. This chart here is just showing the employment cost index at 3.7 percent. That's the highest number we've seen going back to the third quarter of 2004. So there's a lot going on in inflation to summarize. And the reality is, I, th I do believe we're sort of at the peak of the inflation sign curve going back to that uh, chart here on slide 27. But really not just the U.S., we're actually kind of at the peak of the inflation side curve for you know most of the economies in the world. And so if we're having this conversation, I don't know, four or five months from now in terms of getting you know three or four months of reported data from here, we think it'll be pretty clear that inflation's on a path towards trending deceleration by the middle, mid to late Q1 of next year. But obviously we have to, to look the inflation at the wide of the eyes right now and kind of deal with that. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should jump in here. And, yes, and, absolutely, uh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. 
kind of say like, this is really interesting stuff. And these are such incredible times, right? And what I always tell people, the people who work with me are, we're paid to have an opinion, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what I like about what Darius has shown us is, you know, basically he has four different scenarios. Darius, you can correct me if there's something I didn't read quite right here. But uh, mm-hmm. the opinion that we're paid to have is to choose where we, where we're situated, to build the portfolios that we use for our clients. We have to mm-hmm. be able to explain why we chose one, um, you know, one category or one scenario over another, and exactly. the and the client's going to judge our judgment or our choice of that scenario on how well the portfolios do. Okay, because as, oh, yeah. as Darius says, he likes to work with charts, but but uh, clients don't actually like to look too much at charts. I mean, it kind of no. they kind of <laughs> they kind of fall asleep at the table, right? But um, essentially, what we offer to clients in terms of their investment portfolio and the decisions that we make to overweight or underweight bonds are all anchored. In the fact that we've looked at these charts, we understand these charts and we form an opinion, mm. right? Yep. And that opinion has to be, be explained very simply and very succinctly to a client, especially if you want to say something like, I think we should reduce the bonds in your portfolio. Oh, yeah. And the client has always associated bonds with security and safety. Um, I'll just say that personally, I mean, I, I think that uh, the way Darius has summed up uh, the potential inflation problems that uh, that we're looking at right now, I pretty much agree with them. I think we've sort of overshot those. There could be a bit of pullback, but it is a very worrisome time. I think more so for money managers than for clients who don't necessarily understand like where the heck could all of this take us. They're still kind yeah. of stuck in the covert world and wondering. They 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 still kind of you know, are kind of revel at the fact that we've made so much money during two years, almost two years of a horrible pandemic. So Mm -hmm. like inflation is surfacing now as a concern to how we build portfolios, but it's also part of a a whole bunch of other concerns, which Darius is going to, I'm sure, refer to as well. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head with respect to what do we do with bonds? I think that's a really big topic uh, in the advisor community. And it's a big topic in the institutional community as well. Uh, one yeah. thing we've been, we, we, so in terms of doing that, the reason I quantified all that, because the starting point, or I guess the, 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 the hypothesis was, okay, has the, has the, it, had we arrived at the depth of the 60, 40 portfolio and, mm-hmm. the reality, and, and in terms of our math, if you believe that, okay, the stationary mean of inflation headline of CPI in the U S was around 1.8% in the decade ending 2019. And our math is showing that it's already likely to be somewhere around 2.8% um, in the decade ending 2029. Now, I do believe things like ESG is a wild card in terms of the the potential for, you know, the excess demand for physical commodities um, and the starving of capital for, you know, sort of, you know, your traditional energy uh, 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 suppliers may actually catalyze a bit more inflation than that than what the model's currently suggesting. And so I would argue the balance of risk on inflation is skewed to the upside. But uh, ex- excluding that that particular comment, you know, when I went back and I looked at this, uh, so this chart here shows the the blue line 
uh, is the covariance of the correlation between the long bond and the Dow Jones Industrial Average on a rolling two-year basis. And so you know, the last time we saw stocks and bonds positively correlated because the positive correlation would effectively end um, the 60-40, the concept of the 60-40 portfolio in terms of bonds offering safety uh, and any anti-correlated asset in, in equity drawdowns. You know, you've got to go back really to, you know, the late 90s and in this period between the late the 1970s and the late 90s where bonds are persistently positively correlated to stocks. And so one of the reasons, the, the hypothesis is that, hey, part of the reason for that is that inflation was so high that it made the real return on a, on a, on a bond actually low enough to be an issue. And so you saw inflation in this time period, okay, from, you know, the, as far back as we get the data, this sort of the mid-70s through the late 90s, inflation was averaging over 5% on a headline CPI basis throughout that period. And we also saw a positive 40% correlation between stocks and bonds. That's, that's again, that would be negative for the 60-40 portfolio. You know, in this post it was sort of in this, you know, since this sort of 1998 era, and I can unpack that as well, because I think 1998 is in fact, the most important year in financial market history uh, for a variety of reasons. But I, you know, for whatever reason, this happened in 1998 as well, one of those reasons. And we saw this sort of negative correlation really start to emerge and more moreover persist, but obviously persisted at a much lower level and much lower mean of CPI. And so now that we poked above that mean back towards the level of the mean that we saw where stocks and bonds are positively correlated, you have to really ask yourself, and I think that's what everyone's doing right now, is say, hey, do I really need this 40 or should the 40 be 30 or should the 40 be something else, not bonds? And the reality is if inflation's going back to something that's about the average around, you know, something just shy of two, 3% or 3% thereabouts, I would argue the answer is no. I would argue the answer on the 60-40 portfolio is very much um, still intact. And I quite frankly, I do believe that's why you're starting to see bonds um, rally and, and start to work in recent weeks. It's because I do believe the bond market is actually looking forward and starting to price in a return towards, albeit higher, uh, mean of inflation. Yeah, I'll just I'll just jump in there to say um, I agree. I mean, it's 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 really hard to 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 call something that's not a bond a bond. <laughs> but yeah. uh, advisors and uh, you know portfolio managers have been searching harder than ever to find enough isn't correlated that with equity that isn't bonds just because you know they have to take up x amount of space you know and if they're not generating any return and if there's a potential uh capital loss it really makes it difficult and then there's the mm -hmm. whole compliance um yeah you know the whole compliance about trying to replace bonds with anything other than a bond if you're running a balanced yeah. portfolio. Yeah. What, you raise a good point on, on the idea of a balanced portfolio. Um, yeah. So there's a couple of things. One, uh, you know, Darius, I, I love the uh, I love the, the discussion on the efficient frontiers and how they, they change for yeah. the decades. And there's a great uh, chart, by, I think it's Guggen, Guggenheim, maybe. They, they do the efficient frontiers by the decade. Mm -hmm. And the efficient frontier in the 70s, uh, which is that inflationary negative growth shock time frame. Right, that time yeah. frame that maybe this could be the time frame like that where you get persistent wage inflation, you get inflation that's hard to control at a time where you have very low yields to start with and high equity valuations to start with. It can get it can be a bit of an ugly time. Yeah. If that's the decade that we're moving into, those structural relationships of you know uh, high inflation 
um, the efficient frontier is actually a straight line. So you don't yeah. get any diversification benefit from stocks and bonds. The only thing you get is the attenuation of a bit of risk. So you yeah. add stocks and bonds went down at the same time that stocks did in 1974 because mm -hmm. everything was suffering from that inflationary growth shock regime. Mm -hmm. At the same time, commodities and gold did exceptionally well. Oh my the God. idea of a balanced portfolio is that you have to have a balance of assets that can respond to the various economic regimes. And if you only have stocks and bonds today, you are missing an entire regime of asset classes that are structurally related to the underlying commodity, whether that commodity be gold, silver, oil, oil and gas stocks, gold stocks, those asset classes have that structural relationship and a balanced portfolio isn't just stocks and bonds. And when we say bonds, we mean government bonds, right? So yep. those bonds that are mm -hmm. guaranteed by, um, by the, uh, the, the, the taxation over the population. Anyway, I'll mm -hmm. turn that back over to you, um, to maybe talk a little bit more about those relationships. Yeah. I mean, the, so, so but my quick takeaway is I, I think we're all sort of arriving at the same point, which is maybe I, I don't know that your your ability to i think i think we might be actually focusing that part of the conversation on the wrong part of the pie because everyone's mm -hmm. concerned about bonds and the likelihood of you know structurally negative real returns over the extended period of time but the reality is if we go back to something that looks like the 70s which oh by the way i don't think we are i think the 70s are a very different um economic regime yep. i think the 40s are probably a better um a better corollary to what we're sort of yeah. likely to experience sure. over the next few years um, you had yield curve control, Fed pegging rates at the low end, long end, and the short end, um, and effectively allowed the government to lever up to finance World War II and aggressively delever uh, as a function of persistent, you know, negative real interest rates. So I think that's probably something we look to see. Although again, I, my analysis doesn't suggest that we're going to see, um, you know, kind of a, a big scare in, in inflation that would, you know, that would really derail the sixty forty portfolio. But but going back to the question, it might not be the six. It's not it might not be the forty. It might actually be the sixty. Should the 60 be full of stocks from this point forward? And, yeah. and I, you, mm -hmm. you mentioned that at both gold and, and crude oil did exceptionally well. Um, you know, I, I myself happen to be a, a Bitcoin person or not a Bitcoin evangelist, but evangelist, but I certainly believe in the, the power of the asset class relative to, you know, a lot of other asset classes at a time where, you know, fiscal monetary largesse is pretty prevalent. Um, and I do believe that's sort of something that kind of happened with Arthur Burns and Dick Nixon and then Jimmy Carter in the seventies. And I think the, you know, the economic regime, the political regime is very similar. Uh, I don't know that we have the ability to get into wage price power here in the U S just with the advent of monopsony power in our labor market. That's, that's one of those things that's featured in our analysis as well. Monopsony power specifically one of the most de de deflationary things. And the, again, these Z scores are the latest value relative to the 2010, 2019 sample. So this monopsony power has actually gotten significantly worse in the crisis. So everyone talks about, okay, Amazon raises wages to, I don't know, 19 or $20 an hour. Well, guess what? That's probably the only wage hike you're going to see out of Amazon for the next decade. You know what I mean? And it's not like there's going to be this persistent <laughs> thing, you know, like mm, yeah. it's gonna, that, that to us is, is, is a key takeaway. If you're talking about inflation, it's a rate of, it's a flow statistic. You know, what's going to create new flow of inflation next year and the year after that. And the reality is once you get past these supply side dynamics, uh, the very may, may very well not. You may you may have a, a, a cliff a cliff on inflation certainly from levels that are that we're currently tracking right. at. So 
So that being the case, um, this whole idea that portfolio managers and uh, investors are eschewing long bonds and 10-year treasury at current rates, that's a bit of a misnomer then, right? They, they shouldn't be. If we're going yeah. to enter the deflationary shocks that you're talking about, the technology, automation, uh, aging population, massive debt, yield curve control, uh, to some degree, yield curve control might be negative for it, but we really mm -hmm. should be keeping those those government guaranteed bonds, even though they have that low yield, they should be kept yeah. in the portfolio as a, as a significant diversifier to the potential growth shocks that might come. Oh, is that, is that a fair statement? That's not only a fair statement, that's what we're actually positioning for. And so two of the moves we've made in our portfolio construction, the most recent, um, actually last week, last week we actually bought um, a deflation hedge and zero coupon bonds um, as a function of, you know, going, you, you know, I mentioned this chart on slide five, which is, hey, we're kind of at the peak of the inflation cycle, you know, going back that I've got a few cycles under my belt, you know, now I've been doing this for about 13 years now. That's the best time to buy bonds is when everyone yeah. on Twitter and everyone in your inbox is, is worried about inflation. It always has been the yeah. best time to buy bonds. And so I don't think yeah. this time is any different in that regard. Uh, certainly I had a great experience in, uh, in, Q, in, in October of 18, we're on the road in California, had a meeting to meeting, and we we're going to a very famous bond bear at the time. Uh, and we we're going to his office for the last meeting of the day. And this is between the meeting, the penultimate meeting and that meeting. Jay Powell comes out and says, hey, we're a long ways away from neutral. I think it's one of the worst days in, in the long bond history. And we walk into the meeting and just get completely roasted for you know, for an hour. And so, uh, but it turns out that was actually the best possible day in the last like you know decade to buy bonds. <laughs> and so yeah. I do believe that this is probably one of those times, um, even though it feels yucky. But in terms of it feeling yucky, you know, we're not quite at you know what you know something that we resemble a sixty forty portfolio. Um, in terms of the um, you know fixed income and currency type risks, I do believe currencies are are another way to to sort of manage that. Um, manage that 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 40 of the pie with some sort of lower beta and potentially adversely correlated exposures um to equity to equity type risk and so right now we're at 28 percent total for that and that that's going to continue to grow as we kind of progress over the next i would say three to four months we would expect this all really start to come to a head at, by by middle of the first quarter so um i'm just gonna uh, yeah, yeah just jump in for some uh, precision there so inflation or index uh uh, real return bonds in this type of scenario like where do you think mm -hmm. we are right now with those types of investments yeah it's a little early I, I do believe that bonds you know certainly from these levels on the 10-year and 30-year could you could see a little bit more weakness um you know we certainly mm -hmm. don't believe if you, you think about kind of where, where our interest rates headed longer term um you know i don't believe that we're likely to see something that kind of gets you back to i don't know the, the, 2%. There's this sort of call out there in Wall Street consensus, like, oh, we're going to 2% on the 10 year. And I don't know what the, the, the same level is on the 30 year. It's probably 3%, I guess, um, these sort of round number price targets. But the reality is what got us to, you know, the peak at the, the early, the peak of the early part of this year, we got roughly around 175 basis points in the 10 year, got up to roughly around 250 basis points in the 30 year. You know, the economic impulses that catalyzed that were some of the most aggressive dynamics that we've ever seen. Um, in terms of, you know, there's been 10 quarters in the history of the United States economy, at least going back to as far as we can get the data for all this, all these statistics, um, where growth was accelerating, inflation was accelerating, corporate profit growth was accelerating, monetary easing was aggressive, and fiscal easing was aggressive. There's only been 10 quarters, and we got like two of them in this in this time period here. 
and this is as high as we could get bonds. And so I think as investors, we have to be very honest with ourselves and say, hey, why didn't the 10-year go to 3% in that time period where we're getting all those those uh, rate of change impulses and all those fiscal and monetary policy impulses? And therefore, it, answering the question, are they really going to break out in the second half or in the Q4 of this year? Minus some of those impulses is kind of the, the seed of the joke. Jack's at five. You have five incredible impulses and versus the Hanson brothers. I'm not sure if you guys are too familiar with the Hanson brothers up north, mm -hmm. but they, they actually kind of seem like they might be from Canada. <laughs> if I had to guess. But uh, anyway, it's like you got Jackson 5 versus the Hanson brothers, so I just don't see bonds really selling off, but it might not necessarily be the best possible time to buy them, but I do believe we're going to get an outstanding buying opportunity between now and the end of the year or early part of next year. So I, I liked what you said about this why, you know, maybe it's time that we start thinking that the 60% part of the portfolio shouldn't be just stocks. And, mm -hmm. and um, I agree with that because I think that, that, you know, portfolio managers who are looking for, um, you know, investments that are perhaps more alternative investment classes or not related to stocks, but not bonds are forced to look at things that have to go into the 60% of the portfolio because compliance won't allow you to put that in the, the more conservative or the fixed income portion of the portfolio. So what are you looking at and in what percentages, because I see you're talking about, uh, you know, bit, uh, Bitcoin and gold, oh, yeah. uh, you know, commodities. Yeah, it's, 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 so if we're having this conversation a week ago, it would be very different. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, so we did make a few changes in the last few days in our portfolio construction. We sold base metals. We sold, uh, MLPs. We sold Brent crude oil. We sold nat our, uh, natural gas and gasoline. And then we also sold uranium. So we had a significant portion of the portfolio, uh, overly indexed around 24% of the portfolio specifically indexed to physical commodities. Um, we still have about, you know, 4% if you look at our exposure to USO. But the reality is, is after seeing that inflation print, it became pretty clear to me that the agenda is likely to start to get derailed. Um, and so much that we're very much unlikely to see them come together around a price tag as high as $1.75 trillion. And the, whatever the size of that secondary haircut, because again, it started at 3.5, we've been haircut down to 1.75. And if we get haircut further down from there, it's likely to take out a lot of the excess longs in the physical commodity or in this physical commodities market. You have a lot of financial speculation in that market at the current juncture because investors are looking for alternative ways to fill up that 60% of the pie. And I don't want to be the guy holding the bag, hoping for incremental fiscal largesse and not necessarily getting it to the degree that the market was expecting. And so I do believe uh, physical commodities have begun the process of consolidating their, their, their returns. You're going to start to see one by one a lot of these markets peak out. In, in our opinion, this is our opinion. Uh, you, as you said, we get paid to make a view. Um, you're going to. It's very likely we start to see that that process peak out. Quite frankly, I think that gas is already topped. Um, you know, you're starting to see that. Um, you know, I wouldn't say crude oil is topped as all. I think that's probably the most bulletproof of the commodity markets right now. But I, I just don't. I just don't see a, a reason for being long them at this stage of the cycle because the likelihood again we're heading into an economic environment that is unfavorable or at least historically been unfavorable for those types of um taking those types of risks um if you talk about heading into a sequence of d's commodities are the worst place you want to be heading into a sequence of d's on a relative basis to all of the asset classes and so you know the reality is as we start to get mark mark four clock time into the first part of next year 
you're losing the reason to belong those assets anyway. So I just want to get rid of them sooner rather than later uh, in the context of the evolving fiscal policy dynamics. And the uh, sort of the tilt value versus growth, have you, has that been a big concern for you in the way you construct your portfolio? Like have you been uh, restructuring it all to take into account that uh, sort of value trade? Yeah, so that that's uh, that's one of those things where if you sort of slice the market up into style factors, and I think there's kind of six that are six main ones that I think every investor has to have a view on um, in terms of constructing actively managed portfolios. I would say mm -hmm. high beta, low beta is, is one of those prime high beta, low beta, two of the primary ones. Small cap versus large cap or mega cap versus another two uh, are the primary ones, and then obviously value and growth. Value and growth tends to be the most cyclical. In terms of you know the, the leadership you typically see it across asset markets, you're not going to get value to go up unless the economy is accelerating, and that's that's sort of something we saw in the, this kind of Jackson Five part of the curve. But even though we've mm -hmm. had a reflation trade since late September or since really early October, we still haven't been able to get value to growth up. And part of that, in my opinion, is we have not really seen the growth dynamics in the economy really meaningfully accelerate off the, the slowdown we saw in the Delta variant. And so the reality is we might be actually running out of time. To, to realize what I've been saying, this sort of, I, I've been calling for a bounce in economic activity, both domestically and abroad, on the other side of the peak impact of Delta. But the problem is we're actually starting to run into rising case counts in the Northern Hemisphere again. And so the amount of time that we have to actually accelerate has actually been compressed and pretty, and pretty truncated. So this, in our opinion, is why value, grow, why value has been able to, uh, been a, unable to outperform relative to growth. And so to us, we think this is a sit sign that asset markets have already begun the process of consolidation towards the inevitable peak of whatever we see in this, in this equity bull market. And so I, again, I, I happen to think that's a, a mid to late first quarter uh, event, but you know, again, the, I'm not going to be too specific about that. Cause again, we have a bunch of signals that help us do that in real time. Well, it's... yeah. So Darius, <clears throat> sorry, I, I just wanted to just add that. Sorry, Mary. Yeah. And, and then I'll let you go. I just, I just wanted to add that, that, you know, Basically, what you're pointing to is the fact that the inflationary impulse that we've had up till now is not has not yet proven out to be a growth impulse. Yes, and and but the market doesn't actually believe that there's a real growth impulse behind the inflationary impulse. Mm -hmm. right? right, it's kind of a head fake. And and uh, so so if we see inflationary the inflation impulse revert back to the mean, then we're not going to get the accompanying high you know strong economic growth impulse that would drive, for example, value stocks higher. Mm -hmm. uh, we might actually see a confirmation of of the last year and a half or two years where where uh, growth becomes or the scarcity of growth increases again yeah or the uh, or, or or growth the the rate of growth the second derivative of growth doesn't show up yep yep that's very much true right tesla becomes 25% I mean, of the s&p 500 <laughs> <laughs> is that already there it just keeps on going <laughs> you heard it here first yeah. <laughs> well, I just I just wanted to remark on the fact that you know we've been talking for 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 quite some time, and only now did we mention the Delta variant and COVID and you know the pandemic. And it's funny yeah. because like when I talk to clients, it's not inflation really that they're worried about. 
And you kind of have to explain <laughs> to them that if there's inflation, this is what can be happening to bonds and voila, voila. But what they're mm -hmm. more concerned about is like, what's happening with this virus? What's yeah. happening with the variant? Is it going to, you know, make this economic recovery roll over? And have we gone too far too fast? I think there's a lot of concern um, from an investor standpoint, still related to where are we with respect to COVID, the variants, how is this playing out? And my question to you is how how do you factor in the sort of delta right now i've been i've been explaining them to clients as sort of like little you know fire fires that take off in one yeah. in one area as opposed to another um and not ex and not the big you know the big bonfire that we were trying to put out a year ago so that's pretty yeah. much what we're we're looking at going forward, and it shouldn't compromise the the rebound in the economic activity that we've been seeing. So, how do you see that, and then how do you see it spilling out eventually out of the U.S., which has been, you know, for us as Canadians, we've kind of watched the U.S. Uh, be the winning market for the for the past now more than decade. Um, I'll remind you that for us. From 2000 to 2010, it was Canada that was the oh, yeah. winning market, right? So we kind of handed it over to you guys for for the last decade. And then now we're playing out into this new decade where a lot of people are saying where we're finally going to start to see growth uh, moving into markets that are outside of North America. So I'd be curious to have your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I I definitely agree with the, the the last statement you made, which is we're very likely to see a a sea change in leadership, and this goes back to I think the lo the longer term implications of the value growth uh, the discussion we just mm -hmm. had. I se equity sector and style factor leadership for the past decade, maybe a little bit over the last decade, has been primarily driven by at you know exposures that do well when interest rates go down, exposures that do well when the dollar goes up, disinflationary type exposures deflation Goldilocks. And the reality is if we sort of start to see a, a longer term breakdown in the dollar, which I do believe is, is a, you know, second half of 2023 event, you know, heading into 2024, I do believe that you're going to see the reemergence of uh, e emerging market outperformance, reemergence of value, cyclical outperformance um, in asset markets, and, and, and really most importantly, the reemergence of global equity outperformance relative to U.S. equities. The sort of um, U.S. exceptionalism has really gone long in the tooth. And as you know, most, most anyone will tell you who's done this for a long time, cycles don't die of old age, they die of catalysts. And we do believe there are very specific catalysts on the horizon to get you there. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll answer that part and then I'll, I'll transition back to, to COVID and Delta because that's probably uh, a little bit easier to, uh, to discuss. But mm -hmm. in turn, oh, so we should just share our slides again. It's always better to show the chart versus, versus ramble on. <laughs> learn that early. Learn that early. Uh, so in terms of why I believe the, 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 the dollar is, you know, structurally challenged and I'm, again, I'm not alone in this view. I do believe that you know, there's other investors who've done a lot of great work on this, but, um, in terms of how we approach the, pro the, the problem set, it's really not about, are we trying to get to a higher or lower dollar? It's really talking about what's changing at the margin in terms of the structural factors that determine currencies, that determine the value of currencies and the, the direction of currencies. And so politics being one of those factors, uh, particularly in the currency market, uh, how we quantify, we try to quantify everything at 42 macro, 
uh, that's the quant part of the quantum mental. Uh, we look at uh, uh, the Gini coefficient as a measure of income inequality. So that's on the x-axis here. And then the y-axis is the headline unemployment rate. And sort of, the, I guess the first thing everyone notices when, I, when they look at the chart is the same thing I noticed when I look at the chart is that the U.S. is not hanging out with its Western developed market counterparts. It's effectively become an emerging market from the perspective of inequality and, and unemployment. And so that's a big deal. That's created a zeitgeist of discontent in the U.S. market, which is why it's a political risk. You know, the further you out on the spectrum, the more you happen to have a lot more sort of political volatility. You tend to have populism as a function of that. And that's certainly why, in our opinion, we've seen a lot of populism. But kind of just jumping ahead uh, real quick, you know, on this chart here, we show uh, the sovereign fiscal balance as on the X, on the y-axis and the current account balance on the x-axis. And so, you know, that zeitgeist of discontent, in our opinion, is why the U.S. panicked, our policymakers panicked relative to everyone else in the world. It's not like we were the only kind of country that got COVID. We just panicked in a way as a function of COVID because of what COVID effectively did to these relationships. It took our, a very unequal, you know, kind of underemployed economy, particularly at the lower end of the, of the labor force, and made it even more unequal and more underemployed. In fact, not employed in many cases, obviously, with respect to uh, you know, leisure and hospitality, things, those, those types of industries. So that zeitgeist, in our opinion, is, is really what's been, you know, kind of perpetuating this sort of transition to a very easy fiscal monetary policy in the U.S. The Fed's adopted its changes mandate to an average inflation targeting mandate, which is code for, you know, we're going to run inflation hotter than it used to be because ultimately what we're targeting is a maximum inclusive employment goal. And in our opinion, the fiscal policy support that we've seen throughout COVID is also a, a reaction to a lot of these zeitgeists. And to me, this chart is, uh, you know, I, I say this all the time, this is the most important chart of macro. This chart of macro explains that zeitgeist and it explains that, 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 that reaction function that we've seen evolve from the Fed and from the Treasury. So the blue line in this chart shows uh, employee compensation as a percent of GBA, that's the broadest measure of corporate income. And the red line shows the corporate profits as a percent of GDP. And so what you should notice when you look at this chart is that you have, you know, sort of two cyclical features, but they're both, you know, kind of pretty, pretty you know, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're, it's a pretty stable, harmonious relationship with respect to those two, uh, two metrics um, in the economy for a really long period of time. But starting around the year 2000, you had a bunch of things start to occur that have really catalyzed the breakdown <clears throat> in employee, employee compensation and really a breakout of corporate profitability um, in the U.S., you know, namely China joining the WTO and the advent of globalization, you know, at the, the rate that we see that, you know, kind of develop in the last 20 years. We've also seen, um, you know, sort of the, a record easy monetary policy that's really made it very easy for large corporations to, to capitalize themselves and create monopsony power throughout the economy. Um, it's a lot easier to, to, to maintain, grow and maintain a moat when interest rates are perpetually falling for, for corporate debt. And then lastly, obviously the proliferation of the private equity industry um, was a factor as well in terms of all the industry consolidation we've seen and the, the you know, the explosion in, in the, in the thought process around corporate profits. And again, that, in our opinion, that industry itself is a, is a baby. It's a function of easy, you know, record persistent, easy monetary policy. And so kind of getting to the, the key conclusion here is that it's very likely that we don't, we're not going to stay down here in terms of the size of our budget deficit, but the reality is we're all going to sort of gravitate back up on this chart in terms of the, you know, how big our budget deficits are, but the reality is the zeitgeist in America dictates that we don't take it back to a more normal level. It's certainly not at any time soon. And that's the, that's the it's, issue. And that's the issue as it relates to the dollar because four central banks don't want to buy our treasuries, which means the Fed has to perpetually do it, which is the, the, the kind of the aha moment is, okay, if the Fed has to do it, 
what happens when all the rest of the central bankers in the world stop with their emergency monetary policy. We're the ones going to still be doing some version of emergency monetary policy for an extended period of time. And so this is kind of the key takeaway on the dollar, which is, you know, when this dollar, this blue line is the dollar, it's obviously very, you know, structurally elevated relative to its long-term time series. If this thing starts to break, and I say again, I think it's a late 2023 heading into 2024 kind of trade, because I do believe other market central banks have to normalize their policy or at least be begin the process of normalizing their policy. Once we they start to do it, the mark currency market's going to look at the dollar and say, you are nowhere near normalizing policy. You may never normalize policy. And that, in my opinion, is how you get a much lower dollar, how you get a breakout at cyclicals relative to to develop or to to um to defensives and obviously break out in, in international markets relative to the US. You know, Darius, I, I um I don't know what the reaction is normally when you show these charts, but I'm I it's just like I'm blown away because I, I that's the first time I've seen inequality quantified in one chart. Oh thank you. Like that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um What's what's the Darius? What's the normal reaction? What's the reaction that you're getting to these charts when you're presenting them to your clients or your uh, your member your you know membership? Yeah, the the reaction tends to be very favorable. I think I think you know there's a certain there's been a proliferation of narrative driven investing. I think there's a bubble in narrative driven investing, and part of that bubble is you know it's been never been easier than it is now to amalgamate the narrative to to go turn on Twitter or turn on. Yeah you know, CNBC or Bloomberg to actually just get the, the talking points. And so I think a lot of investors, when they sit down with me and, and kind of go through these, these, these data, they really sort of go, oh, you know, that's what's driving the narrative. You know, this is, if I can just predict these time series, yeah. I understand, I can, you know, kind of, you know, kind of front run the changes in the narratives a lot better. And that's what we're really trying to do. It's not that we, you know, have some crystal ball into the future or that any of our forecasts are going to be, you know, perfectly accurate. There's obviously forecast error in any process. But the reality is that the, 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 the Bayesian way in which we approach markets and constantly updating all these data, constantly updating all these charts allows us to spot the changes in the narratives, you know, with a little bit more lead time than the actual development of the narratives themselves. So that, that's pretty helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's been characterized, uh, you know, commonly in the last year, it's been characterized as a K-shaped recovery. But mm -hmm. but when you see, you know, like what I, I guess what, what sort of blew me away with your the charts that you just showed just now was that they really give a very clear reason for why there's so much polarization mm -hmm. in the economy and 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 what's driving you know what has driven the the narratives on on social media between you know the sort of hard right and the hard left mm -hmm. and and uh just to see that in one chart or one you know in a series of one or two charts but specifically the one the emerging markets yeah uh you know the US as an emerging market chart uh, is really uh, that, is really mind blowing. Actually, I just, that, that chart gets a lot of eyeballs, especially coming from an American. <laughs> yeah. We don't usually have Americans showing us those kind of charts, but, uh, but yeah, no, that uh, that uh, I think is 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 a very cold, hard look at at what's going on right now. But just mm -hmm. to be clear, how does this affect? how you manage money. It's going to yeah, affect the dollar. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'd just like to hear you out on that part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So that that's a phenomenal question because I, I do believe in what we do at 42 Macro is, is, is macro risk management. 
which is the relation relating the macroeconomic impulses to actionable investment strategy, as opposed to okay. being a macroeconomist, which is okay. I think unemployment is going to be here by a certain time horizon. That's that means <laughs> it's kind of useful, but it's more of an academic exercise <clears throat> than what we're ultimately trying to do, which is help investors make and save money. Um, so in terms of how that factors into our portfolio construction, the reality is none of those views currently do because the, re the reality is those are, in our opinion, views that should be start to be priced in roughly a year from now. And be, you, know, mm -hmm. you can make and save a lot of money or lose a lot of money between now and a year from now, putting on a trade that's not ready to work. And so in our opinion, part of what we do at 42 Macro is, you know, through the lens of our market regime now casting process, again, we're, we're effectively trying to now cast using market information through the lens of our volatility adjusted momentum signal process, what sort of regime the market is in. And, you know, as you saw, like going back to, you know, kind of the start of last year, we transitioned from a pretty clear and obvious reflation regime to a pretty clear and obvious deflation regime that was followed by a pretty clear and obvious Goldilocks period that then was followed by, I would argue, one of the most historic reflation trades of all time. And so now we sort of spent the summertime in this sort of soup of, 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 of confusion from the perspective of, okay, what the heck are markets even trying to price in? We got Citigroup's leading one day, defensives leading another day, bonds going up, bonds going down. It was a mess trying to risk manage markets this summer. If you, if you take one look off the S&P 500, S&P 500 just kind of was a, you know, uh, man on fire walking through all that, that noise. But the reality is underneath the surface, we saw a lot of um, variance in sector and style factor leadership and, and, and sector leadership and fixed income markets. And so going back to the question, how do you price that in? We use that process to guide us and to dick to help us, you know, sort of orient how big these slices of the pie are. Right now, the market is currently in a reflation regime, but the reality is inflation is actually the highest probability uh, outcome from a macroeconomic standpoint. That's what we're seeing here with those modal outcome eyes here in the U.S. economy, um, also from a conditional probability perspective. And so we want to be cognizant of that in terms of the next three to four months of market risk or at least economic risk that we believe will be translated into market risk in terms of the size of these pies. And ultimately what gets filled into the size of those pies, what actually makes it into those columns is a function of our grid asset market back test. Uh, what we're really trying to do is look at different, you know, so we back tested everything that takes through the lens of volatility, covariance, uh, annualized expected returns and percent positive ratios. And what we're trying to do is ultimately visual help investors visualize the relative expected return versus the relative expected risk for certain key sectors, style factors and things across asset markets. And so what we're really trying to do is help investors say, hey, I think most of your exposure should be concentrated in inflation and reflation right now. So go find things that will actually work in both of those regimes. More importantly, if you're long something that does not work in both of those regimes, like this is a great in that regime, but not so great this regime, then you may want to reduce your exposure to that particular exposure altogether or just get rid of it altogether. And so that's sort of what we're doing across equities, across commodities, across fixed income, across FX at every interval to help investors sort of make, to make sure that their, their portfolio is in agreement with what the market is about to give them from a return perspective, or at least what we think the market is likely to give them. And do you think oh, sorry. that what you, you, what you just showed us uh, with regards to the um, inequities and that, 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 you know, yep. that the social fabric of the United States, do you see this playing out in the ESG thematic? going forward? Yeah, I, mean, I think ESG is a difficult 
hard. That's a difficult thing to answer for a lot of investors, particularly investors like us, because we're very data driven. Uh, a lot of what mm. we do is based on observable time series and analysis of those time series. And the reality is with respect to ESG, there's just not a lot of time series. You're like, what even is ESG at this point? What does that actually mean? How do you quantify it? How do you quantify it at the micro level? How do you quantify it at the, at the, at the, at the macro level? Um, that's something I'm currently still struggling with, as most investors are currently still struggling with. But I think the key takeaway on ESG, going back to our original discussion on inflation, is that it's one of those things that's not necessarily currently into people's mouths. I don't think there's a real good time series yet for investors to understand and quantify ESG and how it's ultimate impact on inflation. So I do believe it's kind of this thing out there on its own that we all know is likely to be inflationary. It's just how much will it be inflationary and over what duration? And I, I think that's hard to answer this at this current juncture. And so this is, um, that gives more, uh, that, that tells you to spend more credence on the evolution of the market regime now casting process, which again, I, I believe is always pricing in the economic regime, but sometimes they may diverge and they typically only diverge in and around transitions to the next economic regime. And so the reality is at some point ESG is going to really matter and increasingly matter, but we'll ultimately see that through the market regime now casting process, which again, dictates the size of these pies in the, in the overall pie. It'll, it'll reflect in the price of the asset class, but you, you can't yeah. just speculating on it in a thought experiment. Um, the, the cost of the, the uncalculated cost of environmental expense, let's say for um, those who extract oil and gas metals and minerals from the, the, the globe's crust has been uh, under appreciated. And so yeah. if that is going to be appropriately priced throughout the, the value chain of commodities and, and oil and gas and things like that, then those prices are going to go up. Yeah. And then you have at the same time, you know, constriction in investments at all in that area. You know, University of Toronto Asset Management uh, sold all their carbon. Notre Dame years ago sold all their carbon. Yeah. Uh, like all oil and gas stocks. So you have yeah. this challenge where now you're starving a particular industry for capital. Yeah. And we know what happens when that happens. Like you get some price list dislocations that are, you know, pretty ginormous at times. Yeah. But it'll be interesting so to see how that, how that works out. And there is an argument that there's a significant amount of um, inflationary protection that one can build into ESG investments if they're in mm -hmm. those areas. So it's a, it's a really interesting field, lots of dynamics there, but you're right, the, the data is, is uh, specific to that particular underlying dimension of data. It just doesn't exist yet. Doesn't exist. I have a question. Mary, how did you, obviously you run client, client money. Is this something that is, is well represented in your client portfolios, this concept of ESG? And if so, and if not, then I'd, I'd actually, why, why is it not? And sort of what's your thought process around incorporating these risks? Uh, well, I've spoken a lot on panels um, regarding ESG, and to be honest with you, it's like it's not like I market myself as an ESG money manager, but I'm very aware of the fact that this is becoming um, increasingly important for clients. It's becoming important for their children who are uh, now becoming adults and wanting to invest and it's not necessarily just a female thing anymore, sort of everybody's aware of it. 
I tell yeah. people that I think ESG is coming into investing through the back door, whether we like it or not. It's like any company that's traded on an exchange has to be careful about its, um, you know, its reputation and for, for, for several reasons, how many women, how, how much do they pay people, are they hurting the environment? But what I'm looking to do, because I use uh, exchange-traded funds a lot uh, to build my portfolios, is now we have access to basically, you know, the broad indices with additional filters for oh, yeah. that, you know, that, that follow ESG factors. And so I find that's a very easy way to sort of dip a toe into that environment. Now, through COVID, um, you know, in twenty in twenty twenty, people really were looking to invest in um, electric vehicles, um, all of the tech sort of related advances that were made in kind of ESG related areas, and they did so well that that's obviously going to continue to attract investor attention. But I go on record as saying that ESG would not take off until we hit the next recession. And of mm -hmm. course, I was saying that right up until uh, the pandemic and that essentially, but I don't know if you feel that way, but to, to, I think most people feel that it was the end of the longest bull market in history. And now we're at the beginning of a new economic cycle, or we're perhaps more midway through or right down. But that's when I said that ESG would take off because I said, until we get through the next recession, people are going to be questioning the validity of the returns. There's not enough history. And if the mm -hmm. markets start to go through a difficult phase, people are not going to run towards something they don't know what that well. They're going to run okay. to the large cap names with the history where there's security and then, but we actually got into ESG related investing through, um, uh, you know, through through technology, I think much more quickly than I thought we would. And I think we're definitely on a track to see that uh, more ingrained in the investor psychology right now. But are clients asking me for that? Not necessarily, but I don't want to wait until they ask. I want to show them that I care about it and that I'm looking for good ways to integrate ESG filters into my portfolios. Makes sense. That's brilliant. It's Thank always you. challenging too, because it's who's E, who's S and who's G. Yeah. That becomes a challenge, yeah. right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean you shouldn't tackle the problem. I mean, Notre Dame is a great example of a very specific set of E, S and G, right? They're, that's a Catholic university and it has a set of values. And if you're going to get um, endowment funds from the, the graduates of that particular university, you're going to have to have some values embedded in your ESG that are relevant to those people. And yeah. That is something that is, you know, you can buy one of the stock filters off the shelf, but I don't know if that really reflects someone's individual values. So it, it's a great, it's a really interesting and nuanced conversation for sure. Yeah, yeah I just, really I just is. like to add one thing, because like I said, when I introduced myself, I was very early into the exchange traded fund uh, investing and I had to do a lot of investor education. And I did that because. I was of the mind that this is where the money's going to be going. And if I'm mm -hmm. the first or one of the first people to talk about it, people will come to me. And I yep. think ESG is that. I think that if you're not at least talking about it, the people who are 
looking for it now and who will increasingly be going to look for it, well, they'll just go to someone else. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder if we could uh, tackle one other point um, with you, Darius, and your outlook on on China and sort of the global hegemony and transfer of power potentially that we may be seeing or not seeing as we go through the process of maybe deglobalization globally and the mm -hmm. you know sort of repatriation of certain industrial complexes and how that's playing out and and you know China's moves. What are your thoughts on on that stage? Yeah, so yeah, I'll, I'll I'll start with the the secular outlook because it's easier to get through, and then we can open it up to the the secular outlook. Secular outlook is pretty straightforward. China's been slowing uh, since the early part of this year. Um, our models don't have the the slowdown really starting to reflect positively into kind of late Q1, early Q2 of next year, and so that's something we expect we we expect to start to get priced in. But you know, we're kind of heading into the nadir of the slowdown, and so that's you know in terms of what we've been saying on China, which is hey, look. This thing's got to get cheap and it's going to keep getting cheaper. The time to buy China is when you're, you know, closer to this bottom, as opposed to, you know, right here, where you're still trying to accumulate and realize a lot of the slowdown. And so that's something we uh, expect to continue to see in the data. Um, on the, on the sort of more structural side of the things, you know, I, I do believe, you know, with respect to all those cyclical, those, those secular dynamics, you know, going back to the, um, the demographic chart we showed in the U.S., I'm sorry, uh, you know, where, where we were hanging out, you know, further on this continuum than our, our friends, Russia and China, by the way. I do mm. believe a lot of the actions President Xi is taking um, over the last few months with respect to the Common Prosperity Initiative and also with respect to the uh, the PBOC's kind of unwillingness to ease. I mean, you know, this is uh, this chart here shows uh, three-month Shibor, and that's the Shanghai interbank, uh, interbank lending rates. And the reason I track that statistic uh, is because, you know, 80-plus percent of uh, all private non-financial sector credit in China is on bank balance sheet. And so, you know, the interbank lending rates are pretty much the policy rate effectively um, in, in, in China. And so you know, what we're seeing is, is sort of a very neutral monetary policy stance, you know, over the past few months, despite all the economic deceleration we've seen. And that's very different than what we've seen in recent cycles in China. We're all so used to and trained by Beijing to every time China sniffles, they're going to ease very aggressively. You know, this is the, again, the, the uh, three month uh, interbank lending rate. And, you know, that's a, it's a function of triple R cuts or as a function of outright, um, you know, sort of uh, rate hikes or rate, rate, a uh, rate reductions on the short end of the curve. And they're just not doing that now. And the reason I think they're not doing that now kind of goes, Mike, to your point, which is they're trying to go in a different direction, um, longer term from a structural economic perspective. They, I think they look at what happened last summer in the U.S. in terms of the, the kind of the riots we saw obviously what happened in January 6th and this year. And I think they realize that, hey, that zeitgeist, that discontent, that inequality is a problem. It's, you know, it's, it's, it, this is how you get voted off the island if you're the Chinese Communist Party. And so I do <laughs> believe the context of the, the you know, the, the, this common prosperity, it's not coming from nowhere. It's, it's a legitimate, I think there's a legitimate fear at the, at the, in the Peelborough and the upper party leadership that, hey, look, if we keep going down the route that the U.S. has gone down, their capitalist society that perpetuates all this inequality. We're going to have a lot more than, you know, you know, 50 cities on fire. We're going to have, you know, 200 cities on fire because we're, you know, five times the population, you know, and that, that's the issue. I think they're starting to realize. And so, you know, they see themselves up here. This chart here shows, um, the, the three years E score of the private non-financial sector credit to GDP ratio. That's the X axis. The Y axis is the, um, the three years E score 
of the private and financial sector debt service ratio. So when you're up here to the right, that means you're, you're kind of overheating from a credit cycle standpoint. And so from a cyclical standpoint as well, they're saying, hey, look, we, we kind of overdid it and we actually did need to, you know, we overdid it in this uptick here. This is the credit impulse, that chart. And so I think part of this sort of unwillingness to ease monetary policy in response to this slowdown in the credit creation cycle is a function of saying, hey, we overdid it. We don't want to keep overdoing it because what happens when you keep overdoing it is you create bubbles, you know, you, and then when bubbles pop, that's when you create all the, you know, the, the hysteria that, you know, we're kind of realizing here in the U.S. or certainly realized um, last summer and into the early part of this year. So I think they're setting themselves up to outperform. I mean, if you, if you talk about taking economic pain, obviously that is, you know, harmful both to financial markets and also to, you know, business, you know, business people, but, you know, consumers and businesses. Um, at, at the time that you're taking the pain, but the reality is, it's no different than eating spinach or kale. Yeah. You know, it sucks. You'd rather eat, you know, Lucky Charms. <laughs> if yeah. you eat spinach or kale all the time, you will be a little bit more healthy than the person that eats Lucky Charms and, and, and KFC fried chicken every day. Right. And so I do believe that's sort of what they're trying to do. And I, I think longer term, they potentially are setting themselves up to yeah. consistently I, outperform. And this I is, totally this is totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that's spot on. You know, thank you. And uh, China is China has the capabilities of you know controlling the population so that they don't fall in their minds into the same pitfalls that the U.S. has fallen into. Yeah. right. And yeah. we see it even Great. with you know the way they want to control online consumption with the young kids, right? So we don't mm -hmm. want our young kids turning into zombies, right? They're making yeah. a statement as to how they see that, how they want to see their society evolve, whether it be, you know, whether you, you, you have difficulties with that or not. I mean, that's basically what they're doing. And they're saying, well, listen, we've seen what the U S has done. We don't want to go mm -hmm. that route. This is how we think it, we should. And, you know, they, they've created a strong middle class now that's buying and buying all over the world. So, yeah, yeah, I think they're setting themselves up to be uh, uh, hugely powerful, and this is probably the best time to to buy for the next few years. Yeah, agreed. You know what's interesting, yeah. and I'll end on this: is it's China, unlike a lot of other sort of adversaries. You know, you you could say they're jealous of America, or they're just you know America's hogging resources, whatever you want to say. Most economies and societies repudiate American society out of sort of, I would argue, jealousy and, and just kind of a general discontent. You look and the, you know, these mm -hmm. guys have it all, they, they, they're, they're selling. I think China has transitioned from repudiating Western society from discontent and jealousy to, I think we have a better way. And that's really important in terms of giving Xi a lot of confidence in his agenda and the party yeah. at large a lot of confidence in sustaining the agenda from a longer term time horizon perspective. It's that, look, we actually just look across the pond and this is a, a, a poop show, you know, for my part of the look, find a better word. We don't want that poop show on our shores. And so I think they are making changes to, to, to do something different. Great stuff. Yeah, thank you. Amazing. Yeah, and the, the other, I, I mean, just China and or emerging markets and ESG is a really interesting conversation as well, right? When you when you think about um, the the largely pollution is coming from the emerging market areas of the world mm -hmm. and here we have the developed areas of the world saying hey you can't do that and they point back and say but you did 
That's exactly how the developed nations became the developed nations. They polluted relentlessly in so many ways. And now they hold the emerging markets to this new level. And, um, you know, whether whether China's taking it seriously on the ESG level or not, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, just it occurred to me that there's that uh, nuance in ESG with respect to uh, geopolitical Mm -hmm. uh, effects that is entirely unfair and the developed markets of the world, if they're going to take the, um, you know, sort of uh, economic or environmental side of it seriously, then they have to pay for some of those issues in those developing economies. I.e., We have to pay more for copper. We have to pay more for the various uh, base metals and minerals coming out of the third world nations because they cannot pollute the environment like we did. And we have to let their economies develop. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, great conversation. Uh, thank you so much. I think we, we, we've uh, gone on for like an hour and 15 minutes, so I, I don't want to respecting everybody's time, but I'd love to also uh, for you guys to just summarize where people can find you again. Uh, so they've, they've had a chance to listen to us chat for better part of an hour. So, you know, Mary, Darius, where, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you and get in touch with you? I'll let you start, Darius. Oh, oh, thank you. That's very kind. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, we're over at uh, 42macro.com, 42, uh, the, the digits. Um, I'm, at tw- I'm, I'm on Twitter at, at 42macro, D-Dale, that's D-D-A-L-E. So come check us out. Uh, I put out a, um, I put out a lot of content uh, both uh, above and or in front of and beyond the paywall. Uh, but I'd say the thing that's probably most popular that's in front of the paywall is what we call our Macro Minute, where I, uh, every morning at around 7 o'clock, I put out a video summarizing all the key takes, puts and takes. It's uh, kind of shocking the model, shocking the system, uh, the market, and then make that complimentary for for anyone who's in the ecosystem. Now, is forty two the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, or is it the legendary baseball player whose name escapes me at the moment? It is both. <laughs> it's both. <laughs> it's the Universe and Jackie Robinson. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Good. Yeah. All right. Oh yeah. <laughs> So I'm at uh, maryhagerman.ca, um, the maryhagermangroup.ca with, with Raymond James. And I also have my major social media uh, handle is LinkedIn, so Mary Hagerman. And I also have Facebook, Mary Hagerman, BB for Black Belt, and Twitter is the same thing. It's awesome. Good. So it was great to meet you, Darius. Yes, this is wonderful. Yeah. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Your your fantastic insights. You have a lot of experience, <laughs> and I appreciate you sharing them with us. Mike, Pierre, thank you guys for having me. This was awesome. We got time for Thanks. our last question. Yeah, hit him, Pierre. Yeah. So, question for you both. Would you rather spend a week in the future or spend a week in the past? Ah, definitely the past. <laughs> if you're going to end up sitting a week in the future anyway, so you might as well go backwards. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, my food in nature says I just want to be here now. <laughs> Ooh, and uh, I kind of, and today is the present and the past. There's only one moment. Yeah, that's true. I just like being here. All right. All right. (laughs) 
Awesome. Is there a right answer to that question? It sounds like there is no right or wrong answer. Absolutely not. No, no, you guys. They're 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 all wrong answers. But okay, I don't know. Focus on the future, then perhaps I get to meet all you guys in person someday. So.